this is Ken Finnan at Capital Advantage Tutoring. It's my job to get you past the SIE. Welcome to my neighborhood. Time for prohibited activity. Woo! Okay, let's get going on this, baby. Okay, sir, prohibited activities, the stuff you're not supposed to do. This should be a little bit more exciting than the last couple. Okay, so what's manipulation? So what the heck is manipulation? It's whenever you lie, cheat, steal, any of that stuff, basically trying to scheme it out, trying to make a price move, or trying to do something to make money by stealing it, okay? Defrauding, making improper statements, lying, rumors, all that stuff, okay? Basically anything that's misleading. So under the Act of 34, which really goes heavy into manipulation and fraudulent activities, it's the 10B5, 10B3, 10B1. You don't care about them. Anything with 10B in it pretty much is about manipulation. But here's the thing. It's not just for people who work for broker dealers. It's for anyone, anyone in the world, in the country, whatever it is, who commits some sort of fraud or manipulative act can be charged with this. It's not just, not that you have the seven of the SIE, you're subject to it. Everyone is. That's the one thing about this. This is what the SEC does. The SEC will come after you for fraud. If FINRA really won't, FINRA gets you for violations and stuff like that. And if you're a member, SEC comes after you where you live. Okay, so one of the things under 15C3, which nobody gives a shit about the letters, but I say it anyway, you cannot make any sort of misrepresentation that the SEC has approved or any regulator has approved. Remember that no regulator ever approves anything ever. So you can't say anything like, oh, don't worry, the SEC made it effective, so we're good. You can't even imply that or even make it seem that way. So like if somebody says to you, hey, is this security safe or are you qualified, you go, well, the SEC made us, you know, has us effective. You can't say that because that makes it look like that um, that you, they're approving you. So they're not approving you. Basically, the SEC only want, requires you to register, kind of like when you get your hunting license or marriage license or fishing license. It doesn't mean you know what you're doing. It just means you pay the freaking fees and you're not a criminal. That's all it means. Okay. On to the thing. So Reg M. Reg M, nobody knows about. Very little people know about this stuff. So Reg M refers to the manipulation for underwriters for follow-ons. What's a follow-on or an additional or a secondary? Anytime a company issues more shares, like they, the, the IPO, this is not applied to the IPO. Reg M, no IPO. Remember that. Reg M for manipulation, not for the IPO. Remember that. So Reg M has to do with secondaries and follow-ons and additional offerings. Follow-on and additional offering is actually the same thing. So that means when a company issues shares the first time, that's an IPO. Anytime they issue more shares after that, that's a follow-on or an additional offering. So that's where Reg M comes into play. And then a secondary is when, like, if an owner like a Richard Branson or Bill Gates wants to sell their shares in an offering, it's a secondary. A secondary means the company is not getting the money, but a shareholder is. A follow-on or an additional offering is a primary offering. That means the company is getting some of the money. Now, the reason Reg M comes into play here is because it's going to prevent the underwriters or people involved in the deal from buying and selling stocks to impact the price before the opening. So the reason it doesn't work for an IPO is because the IPO doesn't trade before an IPO. Nothing trades before the IPO, so you really can't manipulate it in, under these rules. There are ways to manipulate it, but not by trading because there's no trading for, under, uh, for an IPO beforehand. Okay. Rumors, rumors, can't spread rumors, okay? So the the bottom line is you can't spread false or misleading rumors. Now, if you make a mistake and say something incorrect, that's not what they're talking about. This is intent 
If you're trying to create a room, you either drive the stock up or down. This was a whole thing that everyone talked about with um, a little bit with the GameStop because they said what happened was, and I, there's no proof here, so I'm not saying it is. They're saying one of the hedge funds, when they went short, they started putting hit pieces out to drive the price down. That would be like the same thing, driving a rumor to make it work well for you. So that's kind of what happens there. This is where we come into a thing called the pump and dump. So what's a pump and dump? That's where we talk about how great it is, even if it's a shit company. Again, I could use GameStop. You could almost say that people on Reddit knew that it was a shit company. And then they bought, I'm not saying they do, I'm, I'm alleg not alleging anything. So what I'm saying is that, you know, it's a not a great company and then just talk it up and up and up and get the stock to go up. So all of a sudden people buy it. It goes to 50 to 80. People jump in. The news starts talking about it, starts rising and rising and rising. And all the time you're selling it. As you're talking about it, you get it up to three, four, five hundred dollars a share and you sell it. That's a pump and up. That is a violation. That's a bad thing. Two o'clock in the morning and I'm still doing this. That's all. Front running is going to come up. All the time on the test. It really is. It's just, it is, there's always going to be that and churning. Everyone's going to get a question on this. So what happens with front running is you get an order from a customer, whether it's a big order or whatever it is, and you buy for yourself in front of the order. So a lot of times when I worked with people, it was not okay. If they got a big order for like 50,000 shares of stock to buy, they would buy a couple thousand shares for myself, then buy, use that other customer order to drive the stock up and then sell their position out for a quick profit. That's front running. You can't run in front of a customer. So you can't buy in front of your customer. You can't even buy with your customer. So if your customer gives you like 20,000 shares to buy, you have to wait for them to be done before you can start buying it. Same thing. Now, if it's an institution, you can ask, like institutions are given like free reign. So if, if, if I have a hedge fund that's a customer of mine, I can say, listen, I know you want to buy stock. Do you mind if I buy some with you? And as long as you're okay with it, you can keep doing that. But let's go back to this. So front running is you getting an order from a customer to buy or sell and you buying or selling it in front of your customer. So it's called front running and it's sometimes it's called trading ahead too. You're trading in front of your customer. In reality, if you have um, any kind of like inside information, like of an order or something like that, you can't buy, you can't do the converts, you can't buy calls, you can't do anything that would profit from it, even if it's not the specific security. So if I think you're going to place a big order in like IBM, not that you can really manipulate it, it's, it's really active. But if it's a really stock that I think you can buy, place an order, push the stock up, I cannot buy stock, buy calls, sell puts, buy convertibles, I can't buy warrants, rights, anything that would profit off that. Because in reality, you're profiting off inside information. Because you know the order's coming in. Nobody else does. So you know the stock's going to go up or down. So you take advantage of it. That's front running and that's not okay. Very similar to front running is what they call trading ahead. And in reality, the books try to separate them. But FINRA kind of doesn't. So trading ahead of a research report is when you, like, say you're sitting in an elevator with your buddy who's in research. And she says, hey, um, we're about to come up with a research on GameStop and it's going to really pop it up or knock it down and you run to your desk and you buy yourself based on that information. Technically you are trading on inside information because you know stuff, but it's called trading ahead of a research report. That's bad. So basically buying or selling, okay. Buying or selling in front of a research report is not okay. That's called trading ahead of a research report. Now, a lot of market makers used to say, listen, I know that there's a research report coming out in the future that's going to go it up. So as a market maker, I'm going to buy some stock 
to create so, so I have some inventory to sell when they buy it, that's not okay. That's still trying to profit off of it. So you cannot buy before a research report comes out if you know about it. Look, if you don't know about it, you don't know about it. So if you see an order coming in or a research report, you cannot buy in front of that. It's front running, trading ahead, stuff like that. The fun one, churning. Churning is excessive trading. That's trading too much, okay? That is a very subjective thing. So if I have a customer, remember, it's it's all subjective. If I have a customer that is like rich and he wants a day trade, I could do five, six trades a day for them and um, and it's not churning, where maybe I have a grandma or grandpa who's you know living on fixed income and they trade once a month for them and that's churning, okay? Most of the time, this is more for discretionary accounts because for the most part, if I don't have a discretionary account, I have to call you every time I want to do a trade. But if it's discretion, you know, I can do trades without telling you that that doesn't mean I can just trade. I have to do it suitable. I have to trade what's suitable and acceptable to your level of risk and your what your objectives. So if somebody's looking for income and, you know, income, trading a lot is not a good idea. Now, here's the other thing. Remember something. Whether you make money or not does not come into play. Even if you make a lot of money for the person, if you excessively trade, it's churning and it's too much. So even if you made the guy 30% on his money and it was excessive, you can still get in trouble and fine. So the amount of money does not matter. The character of the account, like what they're for, how much money the person has, what kind of style they want, what their objectives, those all matter into determining whether you're churning or not. And again, it is subjective, but if you see the word excessive trading, it is always churning. Marking the close and marking the open. Really, basically, you're putting orders or transactions in to affect the opening or close, right? So if I if we're coming up to the close, it's socks trading at $30. Maybe I sold puts. I wanted to trade above 30. I'll place a bunch of buy orders and either buy little bits of stock or just place orders to create an impression of buyers so that'll move the price up or down. So if I put a bunch of buy orders, it'll move the price up. If a bunch of put a sell orders, it'll push it down. It's illegal. So you're trying to impact the market. Do you see the thing? A lot of this stuff has to do with impacting the market. So marking the open or marking the close is placing a bunch of orders before the open or before the close to try to make it move a certain way. And a lot of times they do it either to make their um, inventory or their, their inventory look better with better prices or to stop options from being exercised if they're short calls or short puts. Okay, so if you make a quote, if you do a quote, if you're a market maker and you make a quote and you say, listen, I'm going to buy a thousand shares from you at 50, you have to honor it. It's a firm quote. So firm quote, all quotes are firm. Remember that, unless they say otherwise. All firms, what did I just say? All quotes are firm. All quotes are firm, which means if I say I want to buy 100 shares at 50, I have to honor that. I can change it at some point. But if you come in and say, I want to, you want to sell it to me at 50, and I said I would, have to do it. So backing away is not honoring your quote. Okay. So backing away is not honoring your quote. It's basically saying, I know I said I would, but I'm changing my mind. So backing away is no good. Again, if I'm a market maker and I'm making a bid, I'm bidding 42 and offering a 45. If somebody comes in to buy stock at 45 or sell it at 42, I must honor that and either buy it from them or sell it to them. Free riding. Free riding is okay so let's talk about this for a second so we know it's settlement is t plus two we also know that you actually have four days to pay for the trade because we've done that in previous chapters so if you buy stock on monday it settles on wednesday you have to friday to pay for it so a lot of what people used to try to do and it's not okay is they would buy stock on monday 
that would go up a little bit and then they would sell it later in the day or the next day and say, oh, let's not pay for it. Just use the proceeds from me selling it to pay for it. So if I buy 100 shares at 50, I spent five grand. Later in the day or the next day, I sell it for 6,000 at 60. I now have money coming in. I'll go, oh, look, just use the 6,000 to pay the five grand and I'll keep the 1,000. Sounds fair. It's not okay. You have to pay for the trade first. Doing that is called free riding. So if you do not pay for the trade within four days, you can ask for extension. That's always okay. You can always ask for an extension. And if they give it to you, that's great. If they don't, you have to pay for it. If you don't pay for the trade or you do what I just said, where you try to use the sale proceeds to pay for the buy, that's called free riding and they freeze your account. What does that mean? Nothing really, other than that you have to pay for everything up front. So if they freeze your account, if they freeze your account, what happens is you have to pay for it up front. It happened to me when I was younger. I was trading. I was 16. Statue of limitations is up, so I can't get in trouble. I was 16, 15 or 16. What every December I would buy Toys R Us calls. It was such a stupid thing, and I don't know why it worked, but it did. So every December when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, I would buy I would buy Toys R Us calls in December. And then when the earnings came out in January about how much money they make, the stock would pop a little bit, and I'd sell the calls and make some money. It's great. One dot, one time, I didn't have the money to pay for it. He goes, oh, you got to pay for it. He said, I didn't have it. He gave me an extension. And then eventually, he calls me up and says, listen, I I can't extend it anymore. So I didn't pay for it. He goes, I'm going to freeze your account. I panicked. He goes, relax. What happens is it's 90 days. So you're not doing it till next December anyway. And all it means is that anytime you want to do a trade, you have to pay for it up front. That's all it is. It's not even a big deal. Now, shh, don't tell me when I was trading at 16. Why is that wrong? Put in the comments why that's wrong. Okay. Okay, prohibited trading practices and other trading rules. This is all about the trading. So the first one starts off with anti-intimidation and coordination. It makes sense. You can't call a market maker up and say, listen, I want you to put a quote. You can't call other market makers or other broker dealers and say, listen, I want you to let's coordinate quotes. You can't do that. Coordination, collusion, all that stuff is on. You can't basically threaten or harass or, or intimidate anyone. Like in the 90s, there was a big thing that happened that all the market makers some were maybe a little connected on the uh, on the uh, mafia side. Not that there is a mafia, but whatever. So what happened was basically they would call you up and say, I want you to quote this. And you'd say no. And then they come up and beat the crap out of you. They would actually physically show up at the broker deal and beat you up. And then the next time they asked, you would do it. So there was a lot of problems. I think the Sopranos tried to do something about that. But the point is you can't intimidate, coordinate, collude, all that stuff. Those are all you can't basically retaliate against a person or any of that or discourage competitive activities. So understand something. So the minimum quote size for like a market maker or something is 100 shares. So if I keep bidding 100 shares, 100 shares, that could be annoying. And you may call me up and go, Ken, what are you doing? Just give me what you're really trying to buy. You're not allowed to do that because I'm meeting the rules. I'm only required to bid 100. So if I want to do more than that, if I want to do more than that, and I want to do it once at a time, there's nothing wrong. And you can't threaten me on that. That is a violation. Also, if I'm an issuer, okay, I can't um, I can't pay you as a market maker to make a market or as a broker dealer, I can't pay someone to influence the price. So I can't, you can't pay someone to either make a market for you or pay someone to influence the price. Kind of like maybe you do a you say, listen, you call up like, you know, street.com and say, listen, I'll give you like 50 grand if you write a good piece on this stock. You can't do that, okay? You can't pay the newspaper. You can't pay anyone to write a good piece. You can't even say, listen, if you give a good piece, I'll give you a $50,000 bonus or something. You can't pay to move the price. Again, that's, that's manipulation.
Okay, so there's a thing called best execution. So what happens here is you're with all the different markets, it was very easy when I first started. There was one market. It was the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and then the third, which is over-the-counter trading of listed securities. Now, basically, you'd always get the best price because whenever something's centralized, everyone goes to one spot, so the best prices are always there. So it started fracturing and all this stuff, and all these companies started creating their own exchanges. So all of a sudden, you're like, wait, where do I go? Who do I, who do I buy from? So they centralize it a little bit by making it more electronic. So every broker dealer on a monthly basis or even a periodic basis, but a monthly report has to report their best execution, which means they have to evaluate all their executions and look at how they did the trade, the type, what, how many markets were going on, if they can get a quote, all these different factors, which you don't have to memorize. Just understand, did you get the best price possible or did you get the best execution you could have done? based on everything going on, whether the markets are crazy or not, or whatever it was. So best execution, you have to do a best execution report. Not you, the broker dealer has to do best execution and review that to make sure that they are following and getting the best executions possible for their customer. That doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to get the, the cheapest price. Sometimes that's not a thing because maybe there's not enough offer. Maybe it's not liquid. You have to buy it, whatever you can. A lot of factors go into it. Just understand best execution is a responsibility of the broker dealer to make sure they're, they're doing the best they can to get the best execution price. Okay, time of trade disclosures. What does that mean? So if I do a trade, so if you're if I'm a broker dealer, I'm an agent, and you give me an order, there are certain things that I have to tell you basically when you give me the order. So a lot of these, it doesn't matter whether I recommend it or you call me. There's certain things. If I have a conflict, I have to let you know. If um if basically any material information that I know or have access to or reasonably accessible to get, I have to let you know. So if I don't know something, I can't get in trouble for it. So like, say you give me an order to buy stock, okay? And I don't know anything, but they just declare bankruptcy. If I don't know it, I can't get in trouble. But if I know that, or if I know that the CEO is in trouble through public knowledge, not through inside information, but say I know the CEO is in trouble, I have to let you know. Now, to be fair, if I know because if it's inside information, non-public material non-public information if i know it because of that i don't disclose it but if i know something that you should know based on publicly public available information i have to let you know when you do the trade go look i know you want to buy it but the, the ceo might be under investigation and if it's public i have to let you know if i don't if i don't um disclose that but i knew about it i can get in trouble do I have to give you every bit of information about the stock? No, I have to give you material information, information that would help you make a decision. Interpositioning, okay. Interpositioning is basically putting a third party between you and the best market. That's the definition. So I'm a broker dealer, you give me an order. I bring in my buddy to execute it just for the hell of it. I didn't need to do that. If I can do the execution, so if you give me an order to buy stock or sell stock or a bond or whatever it is, and I can reasonably do it, I should do it. If I bring in a third party, there better be a damn good reason. Like it better be that I don't have access to that market and I need them to do it. But if it's basically bringing in a third broker dealer or an extra person, it's called interpositioning and it is a violation. The only time that it's not a violation is if it comes out with it. If, if I need to use that third party to get the customer a better execution, same doesn't help. So if I was going to buy stock at 42 by doing it and you're going to buy stock at 42 using this extra broker dealer, that's not okay. It has to be better for the customer. So it's basically putting a third party in between you and the trade. 
Okay, the limit order protection rule. Again, this goes with the other thing a little bit with trading ahead of a customer order. Sounds familiar, they use it. So basically, if you get limit order protection is if you give your broker dealer a limit order, they have to protect it, which means if you say, I wanna buy a thousand shares of exam at 35, and I take that order and I'm holding it, if I buy anything at 35, I have, to, I have within 60 seconds, I have to give it to you because that's your order. So again, as a market maker, if I buy stock for myself at a price that would be equal to yours, then I have to give it to you. If, it, if I'm holding an order, if I'm holding your order and I buy stock. Now, here's the crappy little part. I'm, I, it's not a big deal. But if you give me an order to buy 1,000 shares at 35, I can buy as much as I want at 3501, 3502, 3503, because your limit order says you don't want to pay more than 35. So I can buy at 3501 or higher. I just cannot buy at 35 or lower because that would conflict with you. That's all that is. So the limit order protection rule means that if you give me a limit order, I have to protect it. What does protect it mean? Protect it means that if, if you give me an order that and I'm holding it and I buy stock for myself at a price that you would be willing to buy it at based on your limit order, I have to give it to you within 60 seconds. That's it. Insider trading, 10B5. Remember, 10, anything you see SEC with a 10B on it is usually a violation. So if you are, insider trading is the fun one. That is, if you are in the, if you are a partner, officer, director, 10% owner, you're an insider. If you are in possession of material non-public information, MNPI, they may put it out there. If you are in possession of material non-public information, Cannot freaking tell people. Okay, so here's the rule on this. Under the Act of 34, they nail you for uh, under the Act of 34, the, the insider trading rules. Basically, you're buying and selling securities based on insider information. If you get information that's inside and you don't do anything, there's no crime. Having the information is not the problem. Acting on it is. But here's the problem. If you tell like your buddy, your brother, and you go, hey, listen, I heard that blah, blah, blah is being taken over in a week. If he doesn't do anything, there's no problem. And you shouldn't have said it, but it's not a federal crime. If he buys it or she buys it, well, then you are both in trouble. That's called the tipper and the tippy. So the tipper is the one telling the person and the tippy is getting it. Everyone in the chain. So think of it this way. So if I tell Bob and Bob tells Mary and Mary tells Sam, Sam, great names, right? So um, those guys, if I trade, though, if, if they don't do anything, no problem. But once you tell something, somebody something you're out of control, you lose control of it. So if, if that Sam buys stock, we all get in trouble. Okay, now you can say there is a defense that like if you're married and you're telling your wife or your husband or whatever it is, and um, that, that you, because it's pillow talk or you just talk because there's an expectation to privacy, then you probably could get away with it. But really good luck trying to say, hey, listen, send my wife to jail, not me. Somebody's getting in trouble. So if there's an expectation of privacy, there's a kind of a defense. But the point here is if I tell you and then you tell somebody else and then they trade on it, we all get in trouble. That's a tippy who got the information and the tipper who gave it. Okay, so this is why they have what they call ITSFIA. ITSFIA, I-T-S-F-E-A, is basically all broker-dealers have to have procedures to prevent the misuse of material information. That's why they need to see your confirms and statements to make sure that you're not doing that. They review it. They're looking to see if you bought stock right before an announcement or something like that. That's what this, that's why they're looking for you. That's why they need your confirms and statements every month or every quarter, really, because they want to make sure that you're not trading in inside information. Like my firm does mostly uh, bonds, so that really hard to trade in inside information. So I, I review the trades and pretty much, unless they're in a stock that we're doing a bond in, it doesn't matter. And even then, 
there's not a real crossover. So our risk of insider trading on that stuff is low, but I still have to match it to events. Like if maybe the guy who works for me, he, he heard from somebody else that a company getting taken over and he buys it. Well, if, if I see that he bought stock and then like a week or two later, the stock popped because of news, I will look and see, I'll look his emails, I'll check the stuff to see if he did anything wrong. That's what the broker dealer has to do. They can't guarantee against intent information. They just have to have policies and procedures to make sure they're doing it. And they have to come up with a good plan. There's no actual rules on what you have to do. They just have to make sure that you do certain things. So we also have um, insider information barriers. They used to call it the Chinese wall. And it's not, I don't think it's bad to say because the referring is to that big Chinese wall that's massive and you can see from space that stops information. So the whole point of an information barrier or Chinese wall, if they use it, is to prevent like people in research from talking to trading or trading, talking to, uh, to investment banking. So it's to keep them separate. Like if you work at a bigger firm, you'll see that there'll be stuff like glass walls with key cards where you can't get in. Your card doesn't work or different floors because that's the information barriers they set up. They do that. It's, the whole point, it's to prevent the crossover information. Now, if it crosses over, you can get in trouble. So people are, that's why if you hear somebody say they're over the wall, that's like a compliance person can see both sides, like they have access to both investment banking and research and trading and retail because they need to see that to do the compliance. But like a, like the head of investment banking should not see what research is doing or what trading is doing. Those are what they call information barriers. We also create what they call a restricted or watch list where like if you're doing investment banking, that's really where it's scary for insider trading. So what happens is if you if you work at a bigger firm, once in a while you'll try to buy stock and they'll go, nope, you can't buy it because it's on a restricted list or a watch list, same thing. Basically, um, if you give a restricted list, so the restricted list is really just so that if we're doing this, the restricted list is for if we're doing some sort of deal and we want to make sure we're not going to have any appearance of impropriety or any chance of crossover of information, we put the restricted list with limits what people can do now. That means you can't solicit it and stuff like that. But if you get an unsolicited order, you can always execute. So if you get an unsolicited order from a customer, you can always execute, even if you're in, in possession of inside information. So let's talk about that for a second. You become all of a sudden in possession of inside information for some reason. Like I once had a buddy who told me that he was, um, what was he doing? He was buying property for a company. And then I realized that that was a company that we were going to deal with. So I had, I had to tell my compliance, said, I just found out that they bought a big swath of land in like New Jersey or something like that. And I had to make sure that I knew what to do because it was, and I found out it didn't matter because that means the deal was going through and we might kind of made that connection, but I couldn't do anything about it. So we had to kind of like pull ourselves out of the deal and not trade that deal at all, even though we knew what was going to happen. Okay, you have to tell compliance or supervisor and they're going to say, don't say anything, don't act on it. So here's my question. I'm going to answer it myself because that's what I do because you can't answer yet. If I become in, in, in possession of inside information that a stock is going to drop by like 30% tomorrow, I tell my compliance, they say, don't say anything. Now, little grandma comes in and says, my, my, my son told me I should buy, put some of my portfolio into this stock. And I know that tomorrow it's going to drop in by 50%. What do I do? And let her do it. You can't tell her because think about it, if you tell her not to do it and she doesn't do it, and then yeah, are you gonna get caught? Probably not. But say they do, you're both in trouble. 
both you and her, because you told her about the information and she acted on it. So then, so it's better to have her lose some money, but really you have to let them, if you are in possession of inside information and it's going to and if it hurt somebody, your customers, you cannot let them know. If there's a legal way to do it, like there's a real justification, maybe you can say, listen, I don't think you should put that much of your stock in one in money in one stock. That's fine. But it cannot be based on the inside information. Now, if you trade inside information on inside information, remember, inside information on its own is not the violation. Trading on it is. So they have penalties. So they have civil and criminal. So civil is basically they're going to they're gonna get rid of your profits and then they can basically sue you for triple, they call it treble, triple damages, triple the amount gained or triple the loss avoided. The famous Martha Stewart one, she owned stock. I don't remember the numbers, but I'm just going to make them up. She owned stock and uh, sold by the CEO, they're going to have a bad year. So she sold her stock before the stock dropped and she saved herself like $3 million. They they um they fined her nine. So they so she she avoided a $3 million loss so they find her nine million. They could find they could sue her for up to three times the event for each event. Okay, so basically treble that. So that your civil violations are they can be sued by the SEC for up to three times your gain or loss avoided. And remember, you're disgorging the profit, so you're making no money on this. Okay. Now you can also go to jail. So for every criminal violation, so the criminal side of it is for every. Every transaction could be a fine up to $5 million and up to 20 years in prison. Okay. Any corporation or, in, or any corporation can be fined up to $25 million per violation because you can't send a corporation to jail. Okay. And remember the DOJ, the department of justice is one who does this after this. Okay. They also offer bounties. So if you think someone's I'm not telling you a rat, don't be a rat. But if you think somebody's trading in this information, you can get um, you can get a bounty for writing them out. You got up to like ten percent of the penalty. There you go. Okay. Now, other prohibited stuff. The new issue rule. I'm going to put it very easy. If you are working for a broker dealer, if you are working for a broker dealer, even if you're the nothing wrong with it, but the shoeshine person or the coat rack person, or even if they have them anymore, doesn't matter. If you're the lowest person on the rung, you're in the mailroom or you're the CEO. It doesn't matter. You once you work for a broker dealer, you are not allowed to buy shares of common stock IPOs on the IPO. You can buy it once it starts trading, have at it. But once but you cannot buy it on the deal price, you cannot buy it at the POP from the offering. Okay. That also goes so that's where that goes. Okay. So you as an individual or the broker dealer can't do it, and you can't do it. So you, so you can buy preferreds, you can buy bonds, and you can buy additional follow-on offerings, not common stock IPOs. That's the only one that's a problem. Now, going along with that, since a broker-dealer can't do it either, the broker-dealer, don't you think, oh, wait, what could they do? They could kind of hold back on some of the, say, say they were selling a million shares. They go, listen, we tried to sell a million, but we only sold 900,000, so we'll just buy the other 100. They, that, that happens, okay? But that's if it's a firm commitment. But the broker-dealer absolutely must make a bona fide effort, which means real, to sell all the shares, okay? So they have to make a bona fide issue to, stiff, to make a bona fide attempt to sell everything. They can't hold back. And that's called, if they do hold back, and I don't know if they talk about it later, it's called free riding and withholding. Free riding and withholding is when the underwriter holds back some of the shares and doesn't really try to sell them so they can make a profit on it. 
They can't do that, okay? Now, a couple exceptions to this new issue rule. So I work for a broker-dealer, can't buy. If I'm part of an investment club or a hedge fund or whatever, they can't buy either unless. So the rule is there's two ways we get around this. One is if you're 10% or less of the investment club or the hedge fund or the mutual fund. As long as the number of people who work, restricted persons who work for broker-dealers, is 10% or less of the total value of the fund, then they can buy on it. That's fine because it's I guess their idea is that it's de minimis, too small. The other one is you do a carve-out where say you're part of an investment club and they want to buy in an IPO, they have a chance. They go, look, we're going to carve you out of it where you as a person who works for a broker-dealer will not get any of the shares. That's a carve-out. That's okay too. So this way, only the people in the investment club that are not registered reps in a way, I'm going to use that as a term, um, then you're okay getting it. The one other exception to this, okay, is great, is that if your significant other or you work for the actual issuer. So let's say you work at the broker dealer, your wife is a CEO or the CFO or an officer or even just an employee of Visa going public. And Visa wants to pay her in stock because she's doing a great job. You can then get stock. So the exception, one of the exceptions to this no IPO for you rule is that if you, you or your partner work for the actual issuer. That, I guess their idea is that that's such a small amount of people that, have, that it works for that they're not worried about it. Remember, here's why they do this. They don't want this. They don't want us buying IPOs because none of the good ones would get to the public. Because think about it. You work on the deal. You have friends on the deal desk. And, you, and if you could buy stock on it, well, you would get the good deals and all the shit ones would get to the public. So that's why they're preventing because it's sort of like you get, they don't want preferential treatment. But if you want to buy it after it starts trading, you're all good. So now, to help with this, a lot of times before you get an IPO, the, the firm has to do some sort of background stuff, and they have to basically let you make sure that you know that this person is not a restricted. So whenever I have an account, if I open a brokerage account, it'll say, do you work for a broker-dealer? I go, yes, and then every year I'll have to reconfirm that I do. But if I say no, every year they'll reconfirm, are you a restricted person? So every year they update it, and then... What they're going to do is before they do the IPO, they go, are you working for a broker-dealer or is your wife or husband working for a broker-dealer? If I say yes, then you say, you can't get any. So they have to make an affirmative determination if you're restricted. One, they have to update it on a yearly basis. And two, before they make the sale, they have to say, are you a restricted person? If you say no, then they can sell it to you. So what falls under restricted? Okay, I know I said it, but anyone who works for a FINRA broker-dealer, okay? Basically, immediate family members, one up, one down, one over. So your parents, your children, and your brothers and sisters. Now, if they're not outside, if they're outside of the firm, like say you're 25 years old and your parents live in Florida or Boca, whatever it is, and you're not dealing with them that much financially, then they're independent. So if they say an independent person, then it's okay. But if you have some, like a roommate and you're paying for more than 25% of their income or their living expenses, then they're considered under your thing. So if you have a roommate, you're, you're in the city, you have a roommate, and you're not paying any of the rent, you're just paying 50-50 on the rent, that's fine. But if you're paying some of their living expenses, more than 25% of that income, then they're subject to the rule. A little deep, okay. Also, any like attorneys or accountants that are involved in the deal, portfolio managers. So if you're managing a portfolio, you're in the business. So if you want to buy it for the fund, that's fine. But if you want to buy it for yourself, the answer is no. Okay. If you own a broker dealer or you own more than 10% of a firm, you can't do IPOs. So basically, if you're involved in the business, whether you're a lawyer or an accountant that does a lot of business either on the deal or for the broker dealer, if you're a portfolio manager buying for yourself, if you, 
Always remember, hedge fund managers, portfolio managers, money managers can buy for their fund, but they cannot buy for themselves. Okay, so let's think about this. So issuer directed security. So it allows for, if the issuer directs certain shares to you, it allows you to buy. So basically the exemption is if you work for the parent company, the issuer, the subsidiary or employees of the issuer. So again, here's the one that screws people up. Say your broker dealer decides to go public. Can you buy shares? Yes, because you work for the issuer. I just go with that one. If you work for the issuer or a parent of the issuer, a subsidiary of the issuer, they can direct shares to you and you can get them. Okay, so one, okay, easy stuff. No guarantees. You, as a registrar, you can never guarantee a profit or guarantee against a loss or any of that stuff. We know that. Now, the other part of this is sharing in the accounts. Can you have a joint account with your customer? Yes, but there's a lot of rules. One, the, basically, the, the, you have to get consent from the broker-dealer and the customer prior to doing it. And it has to match your percentage. So basically, if you put in 40 and I put in 60, then all the money gets split 60-40. So it's, your financial contribution will determine what your payout is. You can't do like... You can't, I can't say, listen, you put in 90%, I'll put in 10%, and then I'm going to get 50% of the profits. It doesn't work that way. Basically, it's going to match your percentage ownership, direct proportion to your financial contribution. Okay. Okay, borrow and lending. So here's the deal on this. So if you're a registered rep and you have a customer, you can't borrow or lend money from them. That's that's the, that's the base rule. There are exceptions, but right now, you cannot borrow or lend from customers. Boom. That's Always think that way. That's it. Okay? Now. There are exceptions. If it's your immediate family member, remember, this is basic. If it's not your customer, nobody gives a shit. So if your customer is also an immediate family member, you can borrow and lend without permission, permission from the firm. If the firm is a financial institution, like say your customer is Bank of America and you want a mortgage, totally fine, because that's what they do as a living. If you want a car loan and Bank of America is the best loan, you can do that. They're in the business. But they have to do it on what they call a arm's length transaction, which means they have to do the loan based on you as a regular consumer, not their registered rep. Okay. Another one is if both people are with the same firm. So let's say you you and I work for Bank America and you're also my customer. I can borrow and lend from you because we both work for the same firm. Okay. If you have a personal relationship, say you have a buddy of yours from high school, right? And she says, you know, she wants to borrow some money, not for stocks. We're just lending it. She also happens to be your customer and you want to lend her money. Then you can do that since you have a relationship outside the firm. If you became friends because of your relationship as a registered rep, I don't think that cuts it. There has to be an actual personal relationship outside the firm. Also, if you have a business, say you and I are partners in my tutoring company, and I'm also your customer, you can borrow and lend to me for the business, not for buying and selling stocks. Okay. Again, if it's for to buy and sell stocks, you have to follow right T margin shit like that. Okay. But if you're just lending me money, remember, if I'm not a customer, nobody cares. All these rules I'm talking about are if they're a customer and the other thing meets, okay? So if it's a broker dealer, if it's a bank that's a customer of yours or a media family member, you do not need prior permission. If it's a registered rep at the same firm, if it's a personal relationship or it's a business relationship, you do need prior permission from the firm and they have to basically see what the arrangement is, okay? For the most part, no lending or borrowing except for these exceptions. Financial exploitation. This is sort of a new rule. It's been around, not around forever, um, but we're doing it. So now there's a thing called a specified adult. Okay. So this is trying to protect people who are vulnerable. Okay. So a person who's over 65, a person of over 18, and they believe a mental or physical impairment that makes it unable to protect their own investments. Those are specified adults. Okay. 
if you have a specified adult, you have to take it to a new level. You have to take care of these people, okay? So what you're supposed to do is do everything you can to find a trusted contact person. So a person who's 70 years old comes in, you go, let's bring in your son. If you trust him, somebody that you trust as a person we can call if something's going on. And what happens is we, if we think that you're being exploited by, um, by someone, what happens is we can put a temporary hold on disbursements. We cannot, cannot stop you from making trades or paying bills. Remember that we cannot stop you from paying bills or making trades. We can, we can put a temporary hold on disbursements of funds. Okay. So we will have a trusted contact person to work with so that we can, um, find out what's going on and they can do the investigation for us and help us out. The, the trusted contact person does have to be a person, which means over 18 or over. Okay. And they basically, they're going to help the customer's account and the assets. And it's somebody we decide that is capable to make decisions in there. So if we think you're being ripped off by like a niece or a nephew or something like that, we will put a hold on that to find out what's going on. And then we'll talk to the trusted contact person and you at the same time. Okay. Now, again, we can put a temporary hold. We can stop you from withdrawing money, but not bills or not trading because that's not hurting anyone. We can prevent um, wires. So that's the thing. That's where they, they kind of they get you. Right. So say your niece has an account at J.P. Morgan and you have an account at J.P. Morgan and you go, oh, let's just transfer the securities to them. No, you can hold that, too. You can stop that. OK. OK. If you put a hold on the on the person's account, you have to immediately start an internal investigation review to figure out why. OK. That's the point. And you had at some point you have to release it and you have to come up with something. You can't just put a hold on it and wait. Immediately start to figure out what's going on. Okay. I've never seen a question, but usually if you put a hold, you have to tell them, you have to tell the person with, within two days. I've never, ever, ever seen a question for that. But you have to tell everyone who's involved. Anyone who can transact business on the account or owns it has to be notified. That makes sense. Now, if you put the hold on, what you should do is try to resolve it before you put the hold on. So if I go, oh, my God, I think his niece is going after him. You try to reach out to the customer and the trusted contact person before you put a hold on to say, are we OK? So like the example I got was um, one of my students worked at a bank. I won't say the name of the bank. And she was in there somewhere in Brooklyn. And this 92 year old guy, every week he would come in and write a check for like you know, $84.18. That was his bills for the day. I wish I had those bills. But he had like a million dollars sitting in that account. And one day he started writing checks for like 20 grand each. And like, what's going on? And she she had a red flag. She was, this is weird. That's not normal. She raised it to the manager. And the manager, to his discredit, said, oh my God, I'm not dealing with this. So basically he did the totally wrong thing by brought the person in, closed out his account and handed him a cashier's check for the entire 900,000 that was left instead of doing what he was supposed to. So my student, thank God she was such a good person. She stopped the person in the, and he was walking out with a $900,000 check. You know, he's been ripped off. So uh, because why would all of a sudden you start writing $20,000 checks at the age of 90? You was niece or nephew was coming after him. Um, so what I, if I'm boring with the story, just, you know, flash forward like 30 seconds. Um, so what happened was she put it in the office and then she called the main office and they said, hold him and hold the manager there. So they raced, they were down there from the main office in, into Brooklyn within probably 20 minutes, like record time. Basically, they walked in, they fired the manager right away. They apologized to the person and said, no, 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 we want your account. Put it in there. We're putting a hold on it. We want to know what's happened. We found out that the nephew um, was in trouble 
and he was he was needing money to pay for some sort of habit or bills, some sort of betting he was doing, and he was tapping into the old man. So they finally got out. They figured it out, and they protected him, and they put a hold on it, and they they basically worked with him to fix it. But thank God, like thank God, this if they this manager should have been fired. He was fired within thirty seconds, marked up on his U five, right? And um, but that's the point. The whole point of this rule is to protect that from happening. Okay. Now back onto this. I'm a little diatribe. Sorry about that. So a temporary hold can be put on for no more, okay, than 15 business days, okay? So that's almost three weeks. So 15 business days is about three weeks. This is holidays. So if it's anything more than that, there has to be a reason, okay? Boom. Okay, if you open an account at another broker-dealer, so you are a registered rep, you work for a broker-dealer, or you're a registered person of ABC Brokerage, you want to open up an account at JP Morgan or wherever it is, you have to get prior written permission from your firm. It does no that's that's it. There's no way around that. So if you work for a firm and you want to open a brokerage account outside the firm, you have to get prior written permission. Okay. Now, on top of that, they will have to send confirmation statements to the to your employer. Now it's for you, your spouse, your children, if they're in the same house or dependent on you, or anyone you have control over. So if you're managing a trust a trust account with a broker-dealer, you have to get permission first. Now, the exception to this is the previously opened account. So if, I, if I'm at Schwab and I switch over to J.P. Morgan, like as an employee, and I already have an account like at Schwab, I just have to let them know within a reasonable time, which is really 30 days. So if I have an account already open and I move to another broker-dealer, I just, uh, I just have to let them know within 30 days that I have the account and get permission that way and handle it all that way. Good. Key thing on this is that, um, yes, you need previous, you need prior written permission to open the account, but FINRA doesn't require permission before each trade. Now, a firm can do that. Remember, a firm can say, you have to tell us before every trade. They do that. Sometimes they put a holding period on. Sometimes you need permission. Like my firm used to do that, but we realized low risk. Now they just tell me after that. And we look to see if they're going to go crazy with stuff like that. So that is that is a firm can make their own rules to be more restrictive. But FINRA doesn't require permission for each trade just to open the account. Now, these rules, you have to disclose it, but you don't need prior written permission if you open up just mutual fund. So if you open up an account like a mutual fund or UIT or 529 or variable annuity, you do not have to get permission prior because you don't control it. Pretty much, if you have an account with someone and you have no control over it, then and it's, it's managed and there's no way for you to place buy and sell orders on specific stocks, then you don't have to get written permission. You still have to tell them where the account is, but then they're not going to get statements and stuff like that because it's not their business. Okay. If you want, say you have a friend who sends you business. Say you have a friend who has a lot of um, people that you can get you, they're going to send clients to your firm. You can send referrals back to him. Like if he's an accountant or she's an accountant or a lawyer, they can send you referrals and you can send referrals back to them. That's a problem. You can say, oh, listen, use my accountant or lawyer. That's fine. You cannot fucking pay them, okay? You cannot pay them unless they're registered. In reality, now listen, there's exception, but they're not going to go there. None of the tests go there. The point here is that if you're if Joey gives you clients to, 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 to open up an account with, you cannot pay him commissions, fees, concessions, anything. You cannot do any of that. You can't give him discounts. You can't give him any kind of financial payback at all. 
The only thing you can do is send referrals back to him. If he's an insurance agent or, ins or a lawyer or an accountant, that you can do, but you cannot pay them unless they're registered. So really, if Joey wants to get paid for it, let him get the 7, the 63, and the SAE, and then register with the firm, and then you can pay him all you want. Okay, now, let's say you're working, you're starting your business, and one of your client, one of your FDFA or the registered rep that you're working with is getting older, and he wants to pass off his clients to you, but he wants to still get paid. So this is the exception to that no registered rule. If before the person retires, they come up with a contract that says, oh, I'm retiring, but I want to get paid for some of the business I brought. So they can cut a deal where if all the business that was established while that rep who just retired was working, he can get paid a percentage of that forever. He cannot solicit new business. It's just he can get ongoing, he or she can get ongoing paid until they die. Him and, and his wife or her husband, whatever it is, into they, whatever the contract says, they can pay for five years, 10 years, till they die, whatever it is. But any new business, they don't get. So let's say they have five clients and they're getting 10% of that business generated by those clients, but they're retired. If those clients have children that bring in new accounts, they don't get that. That's yours. So it's only soft, only for clients or accounts that were created while the person was registered. After that, Okay, forgery, we know what that is. That's basically just signing another person's name. It happens all the time. You've seen it in the, a lot of times with people, they forge their signatures to get out of trouble. It's really fucking bad. It's criminal. So anytime you can't even fake it. So like, understand something. Like if you open an account, like say your customer opens an account and he wants to give you online access to his account, like online, he has to create a separate user ID for you. You cannot sign in with his name and his password or her name and her password. That's fraud. That's forgery. You can't do that. Okay. Basically, remember, forgery is actually criminal and you can go to jail for that. Okay. The books and records. Okay. So we have to keep books and records for a certain amount of time, which I talked about in the last one. Okay. Now, we can hold it in a lot of ways, but it can be in paper. It can be on CD-ROMs. It can be on electronic. Uh, microfilm, microfiche, and stuff like that. So... CDs, not that anyone uses them anymore, but you can do that. Now, um, it has to be what they call worm. Worm, I didn't know until I started doing this. Worm is write once, read many. Fun. Write once, read many. So it's basically like a CD. You write it onto the CD and you protect it. And now you can read it a million times. You can do that. If you are a broker dealer and you want to do all electronic storage and no paper storage, you just have to notify FINRA. You have to let them know, say, we're doing this. This is how we're doing it. Boom. FINRA doesn't actually say how you have to keep the records, just that they have to be in a basically safe format with some sort of backup. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Capital Advantage Tutoring, Blue Collar Finance Podcast. If you want more, check me out on YouTube under Capital Advantage Tutoring. Have a great night. Wash your hands and be good, y'all.